Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, class action against the church exclamation point. Today's date is Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. It was two days ago on October 31st, 2023, that a class action lawsuit was filed against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, to my knowledge, there has not been, at least in recent memory, with all the flurry of lawsuits that have been filed against the church, I am not aware of a class action having been filed. And that is significant because if, well, first off, there's going to be a motion from the church to dismiss. And uh, if that is denied, then there's going to be an argument about who constitutes the class of people. In other words, who is it who can claim they were injured or damaged monetarily by the LDS church in a certain amount uh, within a certain time period and because of a certain reason. So that's going to have to take place. And once that's done, then I would expect in the coming months and perhaps even a little bit longer than that, these things can take time, that we will be seeing commercials on TV, reading about uh, ads and perhaps the newspaper on TV announcing this lawsuit and it's a class action because they're going to be trying to accumulate within the class as many people as will fit within the class, okay? So let me put this up on the screen and let's see what it is that they're alleging and why did, what the parameters that they are proposing for the class to be. Here we go. Now, let me see here. That is not coming up immediately. Let me try it once more. Yeah, I don't know why that is happening, but let me see if I take myself off. Is that the lawsuit itself should be on the screen right there in that big blank space. Hmm. Let's see, where am I at right now? At the two, at basically the three minute mark. It came on later the last time. So let me write down three. Damn it. Hold it. Okay. I'm going to wait till I get to five. And here we have the lawsuit up here. I can't seem to, there I am. Okay. Yeah, I'm slowly learning how to work this stuff, and it's not always a very smooth trip. But this is the first page of this document, the lawsuit itself being 38 pages long. These are a list of the 
attorneys who are representing the class. And you'll see different attorneys from different states. And if they're from different states, this one's from Salt Lake City. Uh, there's an individual named Scott A. Kittner, and it says Pro Hack Vici forthcoming. At least that's how I learned to, to pronounce that in um, in law school at the University of Texas at Austin. Pro Hack Vici. Latin is the language of the law. Greek is the language of science. Um, French is the language of the dance. And German is the language of dictators. What can I say? So let's see here about Prohac Vici. Yes, Prohac Vici is Latin. I can't remember what it means. But what it means is, is that if you are an, are an attorney in one state, so this individual is from Dallas, Texas. I'm sure he is licensed to practice law in the state of Texas. But just because you're licensed in one state doesn't mean that you're licensed in another state. Usually those licenses have to be individually handed out after a bar is taken in the past. But there is a process, and this is the ProHack Vici thing, that you can, if you are licensed in one state and you are intending to appear specifically on just one case, you're not opening up a law practice in the different state, but you're just wanting to appear in this one case. And uh, I think it's very commonly requested and commonly granted unless there's something outrageous about this attorney, which I doubt that there is. And you'll see that. From the other individuals, Prohack Vici forthcoming from Scott George and Christopher Seeger from the same law office. Yes, Seeger Weiss in New Jersey, Ridgefield Park, New Jersey. All right, so let's get down to, here we are, attorneys for plaintiffs and the class. And it has their phone numbers, their contact information for the court. This is filed in the United States District Court, District of Utah Central Division. And it has listed as the plaintiffs, Daniel Chapel, Mason Christensen, excuse me, Mason Christensen and John Oaks, individually and on behalf of all others similarly situated. All right, that's the language of a class. They are part of the lawsuit. And as this moves forward, they will continue to be the name of the lawsuit because you can't put, you know, hundreds and even thousands of people in the plaintiff section. They are representative of the class, and they're also part of the class. Um, plaintiffs versus Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Enzyme Peak Advisors, Inc. Those are the defendants. It is titled a proposed class action complaint, right? These things have to get approval of the judge as it moves along, more so than other um, cases. And there's a lot of things about a class action Though I've never been involved in one, um, I know enough to be dangerous. What I remember from law school is that uh, frequently class actions are good for the court, good for the system, good for everybody involved in that if there is an injury that's done to hundreds and even thousands of people by one person or company's malfeasance or negligence, then it makes much more sense to have one case going through the court system than thousands of them, right? So that's the first thing. They all have to be similarly situated, and that's why there's this whole procedure about defining the class, figuring out what that's going to be, and then having people apply to join the class who fit those definitions. But also, lots of people are not going to be as affected 
by many of these types of class action things um, than other people. For instance, uh, there may be people, I'm sure there are people who would have paid millions of dollars to the church in tithing. I'm not one of those people. But let's say that during whatever time period, whatever the class is, let's say I had paid $50,000 to the church in tithing. Okay, if I have to pursue that myself and hire an attorney to do that, and the church is going to be fighting it, what is the point? I'm going to spend more hiring the attorney and paying him to fight this than I would get if I won. So in those kinds of cases, it is better to never file at all and just take your lumps, walk the other way because of the expense associated with the system. So this is a way where if you join the class, if you fit the class, you don't have to pay anything. At least that's my recollection. I mean, there may be some nominal fees involved, but you don't have to pay the lawyer. They're representing the class. And when there is ultimately a resolution, the lawyer gets their third class actions. That's where it's at. Um, and everybody else gets whatever it was that was agreed upon <clears throat> in the class. This, this is so labor intensive, a class action. You practically have to set up a warehouse uh, with all these desks and all these assistants and people going over all the mailings and all the filings. And you can only imagine. And there's uh, letters going out, letters coming back. But at the end of the day, there'll probably be a resolution that's offered. And then if it's accepted by the class, okay, if it's accepted, letters are sent out to everybody who's already a member of the class saying, this is what they're offering. And this is the best deal we've got. And you can take it. And if you do, great, we'll distribute it among everything, you know, sign here, because it has to be very official what your decision is. So that's part of the paperwork. And if you don't, it will say, then you're not a part of the class anymore. And you're going to have to bring any remedies that you want to have to court yourself. Okay. So that's the benefits of the class. As you know, there's pros and cons, but I think overall, it's a good idea. All right. So jury demanded. It's got the case number, and it starts off this way. Plaintiffs, Daniel Chapel, Mason Christensen, and John Oaks, bring this action for themselves and all others similarly situated against defendant corporation of the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, COP, and Enzyme Peak Advisors, Inc., Enzyme, Collectively, defendants, upon personal knowledge of the facts pertaining to plaintiffs and on information and belief as to all other matters, and upon the investigation conducted by plaintiffs' counsel, plaintiffs allege as follows. Preliminary statement. For decades, COP, remember, that's the church, Corporation of the President, has used false pretenses to obtain donations. Rather than use these funds entrusted to it for charitable work, COP secreted donations away in Enzyme, Enzyme Peak in order to avoid public scrutiny and accountability to the donors and instead use them for purposes never contemplated by donors and contrary to representations by COP. By the way, as I read through this tonight, I'm going to change COP just to the church, okay? And I'm going to change uh, Enzyme to Enzyme Peak because uh, Enzyme Peak has a specific meaning and Enzyme used to be a magazine. A primary source of donated funds obtained by the church are tithes, which are traditionally 10% of any income or profits earned each year by members for the mission of the church. 
In addition to the regular tithes, the church also solicits independent donations from members and non-members alike to fund specific charitable work. For instance, the church maintains various philanthropies, including humanitarian relief, which provides immediate emergency assistance to victims of disasters. On its website, the church solicits donations to the Humanitarian Relief Fund by stating that 100% of every dollar donated is used to help those in need without regard to race, religion, or ethnic origin, period, end of quote. And they actually have a replication of what's on uh, that website that they're quoting from in the document. That's a nice touch. I like that. Despite these representations to donors, plaintiffs understand, based on public reports from third parties, that the church deliberately hid that some, if not all, of these donations. I'm what, I think maybe that that shouldn't be there. Okay, so it would be uh, despite these representations to donors, plaintiffs understand, based on public reports from third parties, that the church deliberately hid some, if not all, of these donations, including both tithes and donations made to a church philanthropy, um, are permanently invested in accounts. Ugh, that's an awkward parenthetical statement. I'm sorry, I have to go back. Um Okay, plaintiffs understand that the church deliberately hid some, if not all, of these donations are permanently. That doesn't follow, does it? You're supposed to be able to read through the parenthetical statement and the sentence is supposed to pick up where it left off. Okay, I'll try one more time. And if not, I'll just keep reading. Um, plaintiffs understand, based on public reports from third parties, that the church deliberately hid some, if not all, of these donations are permanently invested in accounts it never uses for any charitable work, so that every year an enormous portion of the donations are never spent for these or any purposes. The church went to extreme lengths to conceal from the public and its members the actual disposition of donations. Yes, I think that's an established fact. It created a special nonprofit entity, Enzyme Peak, to hold and invest the donations. The church had Enzyme Peak egregiously understate the value of its holdings in public filings with the Internal Revenue Service and the Securities and Exchange Commission. This allowed the church to ensure the nature and extent of its assets remained hidden. In December 2019, a whistleblower with exclusive knowledge of the finances of defendants divulged that over the past two decades, the church has funneled billions of dollars of donations into covert permanent investments through Enzyme Peak. In response, the church continued its efforts to conceal its practices, including issuing a statement that it, quote, complies with all applicable law governing our donations, investments, taxes, and reserves, period, end of quote. In February 2023, the Securities and Exchange Commission brought charges against Enzyme Peak and the church related to their evasion of public reporting requirements through the use of shell corporations to avoid negative consequences in light of the size of the church's portfolio. And that's a quote from the, the order. As part of a negotiated settlement with the SCC, the church and Enzyme Peak agreed to pay a total of $5 million in civil penalties to settle the charges. Yep, $1 million the church. Four million to 
Enzyme Peak. Because defendants engaged in a scheme to solicit funds from donors for specific purposes, but actually used those funds for different purposes and hid their actual use of funds from donors, plaintiffs are entitled to money damages and injunctive relief under Utah law. Plaintiffs, on behalf of the class of other people who made donations to the church and its charitable arms, now ask the court to determine that the church has breached the fiduciary and other duties it owed donors in its solicitation, collection, use, and disposition of these charitable donations. Defendants continue to misrepresent their use of funds, including concealing their illegal scheme to hide their assets using shell companies, even after the whistleblower first came forward in 2019. Yep, that's all true. We've covered that both here at Radio Free Mormon as well as on Mormonism Live. Now they're going to have some paragraphs in the complaint about jurisdiction and venue saying why this is the correct court to file this case and then something about the parties where they are located. I'm not going to read through those. These are essential elements of a complaint, but usually not the most interesting. Okay. So we do know that plaintiff Daniel Chapel is a resident of Virginia and plaintiff Mason Christensen is a resident of Utah. And they're talking about the amounts that they have donated to the church. For instance, here it says on paragraph number 20, between January 1st, 2013 and today. So basically mm, almost 11 years. Mr. Chapel donated approximately $108,000 to the church. And Mr. Christensen, who lives in Utah, says that between January 1st, 2013, the same beginning date and today, Mr. Christensen directly donated approximately $120,000 to the church. In addition, Mr. Christensen has donated approximately $46,000 through donor-advised funds. Mr. Christensen is an active member of the church who made his most recent annual donation to the church on November 11th, 2022, and plans to continue making annual donations for the foreseeable future. With the understanding, the equitable and injunctive relief sought in this litigation is realized. That is an interesting position for the plaintiff, because it sounds like he's continuing as a faithful member, he's going to continue to make donations, he's going to continue to pay tithing, but... The church needs to be using it for what it is they should be using it for and not hoarding it. Um, okay, so these are the types of uh, details that they want to put in there because this is what they're going to be asking for in relief is the amounts that they paid. And I'm sure that the complaint will make it clear why it is that they're starting in January 1st, 2013 <clears throat> and not before then. Any applicable statutes of limitations are told Okay, plaintiffs and class members did not discover and could not discover through the exercise of reasonable diligence, this is the legal standard, that defendants had been engaged in a scheme to defraud plaintiffs and other donors by soliciting charitable donations using false and misleading representations, actually directing donor funds toward Enzyme Peaks investment portfolio and engaging in a series of sham transactions and security law violations in order to obscure the true use of the funds from donors and regulatory authorities. Yes, 
Yes. I think that's one sentence. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines. <laughs> Impressive. Um, all I can say here is that what they're saying is, yeah, they can go back to 11 years ago, January 1st, 2013, because it's, if, if any statute of limitations had been violated, and typically it might be around three years in a case like this, they wouldn't be able to go back for any money that was donated before three years ago, okay? So that's the effect of the statute of limitations being invoked on this. And so the legal standard is simply, uh, is this something where you're just sitting on your rights and you didn't file because you waited forever and then it's too late? Or is it something where you had no idea that you were being taken advantage of, that you were being harmed, and no reasonable effort on your part to figure it out would have been able to figure it out? So in a situation like this, and I think even though it's a huge run on sentence, it's I think that's a gimme. I don't think that any judge is going to find, based upon the facts that have already been established just this year in 2023 from the SEC order on, that the church has been hiding stuff and trying to keep their members from knowing how much money they had, especially in the U.S. stock market, because they were worried that the members would stop paying tithing if they knew. And now they've got a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit against them for it. All right. Um, I'm just sort of skipping through this other language about the uh, tolling of the statute of limitations because I think that's going to be that's going to be an easy one for a judge to say, yeah, it's told. We're not going to allow defendants. As a basic principle of the law, we're not going to allow defendants to get away from being held legally responsible for their bad acts just because they can hide it long enough, <laughs> right? Okay, that's the other side. So, okay, so factual allegations. The church asks members to tithe. Members are expected to tithe 10% of their income and profits. The church has publicly, continually, and repeatedly declared in no uncertain terms that tithing funds are always used for charitable purposes. Church members can make tithing donations online through a dedicated website operated by or on behalf of the church. The church also uses tithing slips in its solicitation, collection, and record keeping. The following are examples of two such slips used in recent years. The older version is shown on the left and a revised version the church introduced in 2012 is on the right. <clears throat> and there's a trip down memory lane. There are two tithing slips. And of course, um, the older one has the word missionary fund, general missionary fund, book of Mormon fund, humanitarian aid, temple construction, perpetual education. And then at the bottom, remember, after you, you really carefully and prayerfully decide how much money should go in each of those boxes or whichever of those boxes you decide you want to contribute to, at the bottom, of course, it says, all donations to the church's missionary fund become the property of the church to be used at the church's sole discretion in its missionary program. Okay, I'm sorry, that was the old one. That was the old one. That was where it was normal. It's gonna be this other one, okay? Two such, yes, 2012 is on the right. Okay, now here's the disclaimer at the fund. By the way, they've cut down the number of categories, right? They've cut down the number of options that you can contribute to. 
They've got tithing fast offering. They've got general missionary, ward missionary, humanitarian aid, others specify. Then, here it is. Though reasonable efforts will be made to use donations as designated, all donations become the church's property and will be used at the church's sole discretion to further the church's overall mission. No, you can't tell that a bunch of lawyers wrote that. Mm-hmm. So now don't have any expectations about where this is going because it's our money and we'll use it however we want, regardless of how you donated it. Okay. Referring to its tithing slips, the church explains donors use this form to itemize their offerings when submitting to a bishopric or priesthood member. Outside of the tithe, the church also directly solicits donations for its charitable arms from the public at large. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Philanthropies, that is the entire name of the charitable arm of the church, apparently. They put the whole, as if the name of the church, the whole name, President Nelson's name of the church wasn't long enough, they have to add the word philanthropies to it. <laughs> Incredible. Fortunately, they're just going to call it philanthropies throughout the rest of this um, complaint, and I agree heartily with that decision. Okay, so this philanthropies thing operates as the charitable arm of the church. As the associated website describes, philanthropies is the department of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints responsible for facilitating philanthropic donations, not tithing or fast offerings, to the church and its affiliated charities. The organization has existed in some form since 1955. In 2018, its name was changed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Philanthropies. The church states that donations will be used entirely to help the needy. <clears throat> hmm. 100% of all donations go to help those in need. No administrative costs are deducted by philanthropies or our affiliated charities. Philanthropies oversees the administration of donations to various charitable projects, including several church-affiliated universities and Latter-day Saint charities. A nonprofit corporation also headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. Donations solicited by the church, however, are not restricted to the entity for which they were solicited, but are dispersed across a Baroque web of subsidiary organization. I think um, I would have suggested labyrinthine there. Across a Baroque web <laughs> of subsidiary organizations and holding companies. You know, lawyers are people too. Sometimes, you know, you just repress it so much and it's just trying to get out that little bit of creativity, that little bit of brightness in an otherwise drab and dreary complaint, a Baroque web of subsidiary organizations and holding companies, many of which serve no charitable purpose at all. Hmm. In the portions of its website soliciting donations, the church represents that money donated to humanitarian relief will be spent, is used solely on charitable activities. The humanitarian aid portion of its website describes how 100% of every dollar donated is used to help those in need without regard to race, religion, or ethnic origin. This same page contains multiple links to make a gift to humanitarian by donating money. And there they've got 
screenshot of the actual page. It says, make a gift to humanitarian. Because of you, more people are receiving the care they need. I really hope that's true, but I've got a feeling that the allegation is it's not. And then another uh, screenshot of the page, how we operate. Two ideas are at the core of the church's efforts to take care for those in need. One, 100% of every dollar donated is used to help those in need without regard to race, religion, or ethnic origin. Two, the church's humanitarian efforts to help people attain self-sufficiency so they can be self-reliant long after the humanitarian project ends. Okay. And of course, they're repeating this and coming up with different instances about the claims and representations being made by the church about how that money is used so that if they can prove that they didn't actually use it in the way they claimed, then there could be a problem. A separate page for philanthropies soliciting donations likewise solicits donations to humanitarian aid with the promise that 100% of every dollar donated is used to help those in need without regard to race, religion, or ethnic origin. Immediately below this promise is another link inviting the reader to make a gift to humanitarian aid. And there it is. There's the link. And no, it doesn't work here. Okay. I wouldn't expect it to. But they do have other links to web pages and information and their footnotes. Clicking through this link delivers the reader to a giving page of the church. The top of the giving page, which invites the reader to enter the amount of their donation, again suggests that the purpose of the donation is to relieve suffering, foster self-reliance, and provide opportunities for service. Relief is provided to people around the globe without regard to race, religious affiliation, or nationality. What happened to ethnic origin? Okay, well, they threw me a curve there at the end. Philanthropies. This is, oh, this is a, a shot of the page that they're talking about, that they have a screenshot of and that they've just described. And indeed, up there in the upper left-hand corner is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, it is. Okay. The church also solicits donations for its missionary fund. In its solicitation page, the church describes the purpose of these donations as to provide needed funding, excuse me, provide needed funding so that all who want to serve a full-time mission may do so. And here they have the page, because of you, Dedicated young men and women have means to serve. Make a gift to missionary. Make a gift to missionary. I think there should be an A in there. I think this entire world needs a good proofreader. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but yes, they're quoting from this and they're preserving it here as evidence. So it can't be changed by the church and then lost. So general missionary fund, this is the church's ad. In record numbers, young men and young women from around the globe are feeling the desire to serve. Not all have the financial resources, however, to fully fund a full-time mission. Generous donors provide needed funding so that all who want to serve a full-time mission may do so. Mm -hmm. When the reader clicks through the Make a Gift link, they are taken to a payment page. At the top of the page, near the field for entering the donation amount, the page reads, Funds allow thousands of young men and young women from around the globe to have the opportunity to serve a full-time mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who otherwise would not have the financial ability to do so. Yep, and there it is. There's that language that they're quoting there right next to the gift amount. I think I know why they're doing this, and I'll bet you do too. 
Recently, the church made some changes to its public solicitation, but without any apparent change to the disposition of the collected funds and without providing any more transparency. And now they have something else from the church's uh, website. Church history, it says, thank you for your interest in supporting church history activities. They've got so many things that they want people to donate to. We are grateful for your continued faithfulness and generosity. The church has changed its fundraising policies and now accepts donations for three funds, Humanitarian Aid Fund, General Missionary Fund, Church General Fund. Church history activity. It's all the Church General Fund since 2012. Come on. Church history activities and projects included, including restoring and maintaining sacred sites will be addressed through the Church General Fund. I remember when this happened. This change allows you to contribute funds that will be used to meet ever-changing needs while being guided by prophetic direction. Thank you for continuing to seek and do good. And please give us your money so it can be guided by prophetic direction. <laughs> These representations are consistent with how the church has represented its work, the work of its philanthropies and the use to which it would put donated funds for decades. Yeah. In a 2005 article in the church news, an official publication of the church, the church representatives described why the organization was changing its name from the LDS Foundation to LDS Philanthropies. In the article, representatives from the church explained that donors' gifts are sacred and they are treated as such. The article goes on to paraphrase a statement by Richard C. Edgeley, the first counselor and the presiding bishopric in 2005. Quote, 100% of everything that is contributed through LDS philanthropies goes to the specific purpose it was contributed for. There is zero overhead taken out of the donation for administrative costs, period. End of quote. Okay. So they found a quote from the church news in 2005, which they're going to use as evidence of these kinds of representations being made publicly to the members by the leaders. That was a good catch. As a result, the article continues, donations are often accepted from those not of our faith, mostly for the church's humanitarian efforts. Edgley attributes this to the fact that the church has a reputation of using the funds appropriately and wisely, and for purposes that general populations feel good about. Despite the church's representations to the contrary, a substantial and significant amount of the funds it received are not used for humanitarian aid, here we go, are not used for humanitarian aid or any other philanthropic or mission-related purpose. Boom. Instead, they are distributed to the church, to philanthropies, or the corporation of the presiding bishop. Once donated, donor funds are shifted throughout various church organizations, including between these three entities to Enzyme Peak, and to Enzyme Peak's commingled funds. Oh my gosh. Uh, this is March 2000. This is a hugely confusing uh, diagram, which I think nobody in their right mind could, uh, could follow. At least I can't. Um, maybe that says more about me than about the diagram. But this is the kind of thing usually you expect to see on the walls of the basement of the, you know, where the killer lives after they catch him and he's got any. It's all yarn to me. All yarn and push bins. 
Once funds are transferred to Enzyme Peak, they are continually reinvested and never used to fund any church organizations or efforts. Okay, that's true. And by the way, uh, if you haven't heard about this before, I think most of you probably have, or if you don't remember, um, the details are that the church in tithing, it rakes in $7 billion a year, give or take. It takes $6 billion to pay the overhead for all the church's expenses, including the colleges, you know, payroll, everything, which leaves them with a billion dollars. And that money is now invested into the Inside Pink account, which is now raised to, last I heard, is at $157 billion. So it's got a lot of money in it. And what this is saying is once funds are transferred to Enzyme, they are continually reinvested and never used to fund any church organizations or efforts. And that's true because they never have to dip into it because they make enough off tithing to fully fund everything the church does, plus have a billion left over. Okay. The history of Enzyme Peak Advisors, the complaint goes on. In 1997, the church created a nonprofit entity called Enzyme Peak Advisors, Inc. Enzyme's Enzyme Peak's Articles of Incorporation specify that it is organized and shall be operated exclusively for religious educational, <laughs> religious educational, I need some more of that educational, uh, religious educational and charitable purposes within the meaning of Section 510C3 of the unit uh, to benefit perform the functions of or carry out the purposes of the church. So, they're quoting from the fact that the Articles of Incorporation for Enzyme Peak say it shall be used exclusively for religious, educational, and charitable purposes. Okay, it's not used for any of that. That's total BS. So why should it be allowed to operate as a charitable organization and a charity with all of the benefits that accrue to such an institution under the law? when they're not doing anything charitable, not one thing. It's remarkable, really. Okay, so they further specify that its property is irrevocably dedicated to religious, educational, and charitable purposes, meeting the requirements for exemption provided by of the Internal Revenue Code. But in coordination with the church and contrary to its only reason for existing, Enzyme Peak has never fulfilled its purported mission for the church, nor functioned as a charitable entity. Instead, for more than two decades, it has done only one thing. It has invested donations collected by the church without ever dispersing these funds towards any charitable purpose. In fact, Enzyme Peak has never made a single expenditure for any religious, educational, or charitable objective, and it has no plans to ever spend any of the money it has gathered, instead acting as a massive hedge fund from which no withdrawals are allowed. As the whistleblower report describes it, Enzyme Peak is the reserve of the reserves of the church. The church does not draw down on it, and it has no mission, no liability stream, no schedule of activities, no plans for use, and no efforts to even model the future. The church deliberately keeps its use of Enzyme Peak shrouded in secrecy. Yeah, it's true. 
the church is cutting its own throat on this. And I think and hope that there's going to be enough dynamite in this complaint. <clears throat> it's going to do some damage. I got a feeling. The church deliberately keeps its use of Enzyme Peak shrouded in secrecy. The 100 plus billion corporation has remarkably few employees. 20 people in 2010, 75 people nine years later in 2019. Of course, we know the incredible growth it was going through at that time. It doesn't even have a sign on the building or in the lobby downstairs. Enzyme employees are siloed from each other, separated by portfolio team, separated by portfolio team, only four employees, the president, chief investment officer, chief financial officer, and senior accountant are permitted to see Enzyme Peak's actual financial statements. But the church is taking advantage of Enzyme Peak's nonprofit status to receive billions of dollars of tax breaks on the interest its investments generate, even though Enzyme Peak demonstrably does nothing charitable, religious, or educational. The church repeatedly misrepresents what it does with the donations that end up in Enzyme. This is going to be a critical part of this lawsuit. Let's see what they have. They've already mentioned a few things above. Paragraph 60. By December of 2019, Enzyme Peak had accumulated more than $120 billion from donations to the church or returns on investment of those donations. Okay, the donations plus the interest from the investment. As the whistleblower report states, Enzyme Peak made zero distributions in the first 12 years of its existence. Can you imagine? Zero distributions. Nothing going out. It did have two outflows in 22 years. Neither was planned and neither went to the furtherance of Enzyme Peak's exempt purpose nor that of its parent, the church. And we all know what those are, and I'm sure they're going to mention them here later. Yep, beneficial life in the mall. In 2009, Enzyme Peak spent $600 million to bail out a failing for-profit life insurance company owned by the church. And between 2010 and 2014, Enzyme Peak made a series of payments, again using donated dollars exclusively for the construction of the City Creek Mall in Salt Lake City, totaling $1.4 billion. In the lead up, by the way, when they say um, exclusively, again, using donated dollars exclusively, I know this is what's in the complaint, but this is also going to probably be a main point of contention as to whether it was the donated dollars that were used or whether it was the interest that was accumulated from the donated dollars. All right, just a heads up there. In the lead up to the construction of the mall, an article in the December 2006 issue of the church-owned Enzyme magazine stated that no tithing funds would be used for mall construction. Once again, that debate will rise as it did in this most recent um, lawsuit, um, the, Hunt, the Huntsman lawsuit. On October, by the way, on the Huntsman lawsuit, my recollection is that um, the, the initial judge, the trial court judge, dismissed his case. He appealed it to a panel of uh, appellate court judges, three judges, and there was a split decision, but two of them agreed with him, and one of them disagreed with him and agreed with the trial judge. So that means he wins. 
And now the next move that the church has done is they have filed to request an entire panel, I think, of all the judges in the um, the circuit. Uh, I can't remember. It's a, the Ninth Circuit. It could be. Anyway, whatever. That's the next thing that they're doing is they're petitioning to have um, all the judges weigh in on this and hoping that they'll get lucky. Okay, but similar issue here. So they've referred to the Inside Magazine stating that no tithing funds, yeah, would be used for mall construction on, oh, and October 5th, 2012 article in the Salt Lake Tribune described Keith McMullen, a high-ranking church official who was then leading another church-affiliated company, Deseret Management Corporation, as stating that, quote, not one penny of tithing goes to the church's for-profit endeavors, end quote. And also reported that, quote, specifically the church has said no tithing went towards City Creek Center, period, end of quote. But by this time, the church had already made payments from tithing dollars toward building the mall. Hmm. Once again, that's going to be the, the issue that will be argued and maybe dispositive. Is, is it appropriate to characterize the money used as the way the plaintiffs would like to say, and those are the dollars we donated, or the way the church says, no, those aren't the dollars you donated. That's what we made off the dollars you donated in interest. Okay. Um, we talked about the October 5th, 2012 article. Yes, but by this time, the church had already made payments from tithing dollars toward building the mall. The church and Enzyme Peak have, in coordination, made additional misleading statements in sworn financial reports to the IRS. As a nonprofit, Enzyme is required only to file an abbreviated financial disclosure using a Form 990 on Enzyme Peak's 990 for 2007. You're going to love this one. Its president signed under penalty of perjury that the book value of all assets at end of year was $1 million. And I think they're going to have the document here. Yes, they do. Here's the document. Roger Clark, with a silent E at the end. Roger Clark, dated 11-11-2011. I remember that day, 11-11-11. Armistice Day. Veterans Day. And here it is. Describe the organization's primary unrelated business activity. Well, it's investing. What is the book value of all assets at end of year? $1 million. Under penalty of perjury, I declare that I have examined this return, including accompanying schedules and statements, and to the best of my knowledge, it is correct and complete. I can't actually see those words that extend beyond that margin any better than you can, but that's usually what they say. Declaration of preparer other than taxpayers based on all information to which preparer has any knowledge. And there he signs it, dates it, and he says he's the president. Wow. In actuality, the book value of Enzyme Peak's assets at the time was approximately $38 billion. Yes. $38 billion, meaning the declaration made under penalty of perjury reported a figure that was 38,000 times too small. And I'm sure that they struggled with how to state that in the most dramatic way possible. I'm not sure they succeeded. But I'm looking at this and I'm going, oh my gosh, because the thing is this, he's saying 
the book value was $1 million when actually the book value was $38,000 million. $38,000 million, not $1 million. Yeah, that's quite a difference. On Enzyme Peaks 990 for 2010, its president, same guy, signed under penalty of perjury that the book value of all assets at end of year was over $1 million. So this one was for 2007. That's where it says $1 million. And then 2010, it says, and here it is, book value of all assets at end of year, over $1 million. I don't know. Uh, I just think that if I were this cavalier with the IRS on my tax returns, I don't think they would take it very well. I'm not sure who this guy is that he can just put over a million dollars and that's all that's necessary. Wow. It's like there's this attitude that they can do whatever they want. I think it's that attitude that led into that negotiated SEC order. <clears throat> In actuality, the book value of Enzyme Peaks assets at the time was approximately $40 billion. Well, he says over a million dollars. I mean, he's right. <laughs> it's, it's $40 billion. That's over a million dollars. Meaning the declaration made under penalty of perjury reported a figure that was 40,000 times too small unless the handwritten word over was meant to convey to the reader, multiply this number by 40,000 if you would like to know the actual book value at to which I'm swearing under penalty of perjury. Yeah, who said that? Yeah, the whistleblower report. That might have been a little too cleverly stated. Okay. Thus, the church not only failed to disclose its large-scale hoarding of donated funds, it also, through and in coordination with Enzyme Peak, hid as much information as possible about the purported charitable nonprofit whose investing has yielded more capital than some nations, even by making misrepresentations to the IRS to keep the trove a secret. As part of this effort to conceal the extent of its holdings from regulators and the public, Enzyme Peak and the church participated in a scheme to hide the extent of its assets from the public because the church was concerned that disclosure of assets in the name of Enzyme Peak, a known church affiliate, would lead to negative consequences in light of the size of the church's portfolio. That's a quote from the, I think, the SEC order. Yeah. Okay. Section 13F, here we go back to the 13Fs, of the Exchange Act requires institutional investors that control at least $100 million in securities like Enzyme Peak to publicly file quarterly public disclosures with the SEC listing the full market value of the securities that it manages. To evade these reporting requirements, the church and Enzyme Peak, both based in Utah, launched an increasing number of out-of-state shell corporations with church employees serving on each as purported business managers. By the time the SEC intervened, the church and Enzyme Peak had established 13 shell corporations to hide the church's increasing assets. You know, I know all this stuff. It's been a while since I heard it. And when you put it all together, it's pretty damning, isn't it? What kind of organization would operate like this? Wow. The full description of the church's illegal scheme to hide its assets from scrutiny by, among others, those who entrusted funds to the church for its mission and charitable work 
is set forth in the SEC's order instituting cease and desist proceedings pursuant to section so-and-so of this act, making findings, and this order. Okay. Indisputably, by incurring millions in civil fines paid by the church in Enzyme Peak for their orchestrated and illegal deception, the church in Enzyme Peak wasted these funds and diverted them away from any potential use for the purported charitable mission of the church and Enzyme Peak. Plaintiffs donated money to the church because of the church's solicitations and were unaware of the Enzyme investments, Enzyme Peak investments, and deceptions. Plaintiff Chapel donated approximately $108,000 to the church over the last 10 years. Based on the church's representations, Plaintiff Chapel reasonably believed that his donations would be used only for charitable purposes. Because of defendants' ongoing efforts to conceal from the public the nature and extent of the donations held by Enzyme Peak, Plaintiff could not appreciate the true manner in which the church actually intended to and did use his donations. Plaintiff Christensen donated approximately $166,000 to the church over the last 10 years. And then they're going to say exactly the same thing about Plaintiff Christensen that they just said about Plaintiff Chapel. Plaintiff Oaks donated approximately $74,000 to the church over the last 10 years. And then they'll say the same thing about him, that he wouldn't have donated it <clears throat> if he had known that they weren't using it for charitable purposes. Plaintiffs did not believe and had no reason to ever suspect that the church would take any portion of their donations and invest it into Enzyme, where it would sit and accumulate interest in perpetuity and otherwise be used in manners antithetical to the purported mission of the church and Enzyme Peak. And even if plaintiffs had any suspicions that the church was engaging in any such practice, they never could have discovered it. Not a chance. It was buried deep. Plaintiffs reasonably relied on the church's public statements, including that the vast majority of donated funds were used immediately and that the church complied with all applicable laws. Okay, now class allegations. So let's see who this class is. Plaintiffs seek to represent the following class. All persons in the United States who donated money to defendants from January 1st, 1998 through the date the class is certified. Excluded from the class are all persons who make a timely election to be excluded. You don't have to be part of the class, but you do have to make a decision. Governmental entities and the judge to whom this case is assigned in his or her immediate family. So they're out of luck. Um, that's what the class is. It's very simple, isn't it? All persons in the United States who donated money to the church from January 1st, 1998, through the date the class is certified, which is still in the future. I bet there's a lot of you who are watching this who would fall into that class. I know I would. Plaintiffs reserve the right to revise the class definition based upon information learned through discovery. Certification of plaintiffs' claims for class-wide treatment is appropriate because plaintiffs can prove the elements of their claims on a class-wide basis using the same evidence as would be used to prove those elements in individual actions alleging the same Claim. And they're going to go on with other reasons about why it is that they should have their class certified. Numerosity and nature of this notice. The members of the class are so numerous and geographically dispersed that individual joinder of all class members is impracticable. While plaintiffs are informed and believe that there are millions of members of the class, the precise number is unknown. Class members may be notified of the pendency of this action by recognized 
court-approved notice dissemination methods, which may include U.S. mail, electronic mail, internet postings, and or published notice, or listening to Radio Free Mormon. Commonality and predominance. Okay. I'll go ahead and go through this. I think we're getting close. Pursuant to federal rules of civil procedure, blah, blah, and blah, this action involves common questions of law and fact which predominate over any questions affecting individual class members, including without limitation, whether defendants engaged in the conduct alleged herein, including misrepresentations of the use to which funds it solicited would be used and the actual use to which it puts such funds, whether the conduct of defendants violates the law as asserted herein, including breaches of its duties to plaintiffs and other class members as donors, whether plaintiffs and the other class members are entitled to equitable relief, including but not limited to restitution or injunctive relief, and whether plaintiffs and the other class members are entitled to damages and other monetary relief, and if in, and if so, in what amount? Okay, they're talking about typicality, adequacy, not going to read through that, declaratory and injunctive relief, um, superiority, sure, cause of action. Okay, so now they're going to list all their causes of action. And I'm not going to read through each of those. But basically what they're saying is we've set out the facts and we believe we can prove those. And based upon those facts, these are the causes of action under the law that we are alleging and bringing our case um, under. So first cause of action, breach of fiduciary duty. So alleging the church breaches fiduciary duty to its members, I expect. Let's see. Second cause of action, fraud and fraudulent, fraudulent inducement. Wow, this is quite the night. Fraud and fraudulent inducement. Okay, so they're talking about the fraud that the church uh, perpetrated, allegedly, and the inducement, the fraudulent inducement to get people to donate to um, a fund that was designated as charitable, but which was anything but. Uh, third cause of action, fraudulent concealment. <clears throat> they were hiding that very deep, the... Um, the Ensign Peak account. Fourth cause of action, unjust enrichment. Request for relief. Because defendants induced plaintiffs and their fellow class members to donate money to the church. By misrepresenting how donated funds are and would be spent, they breached their duties to plaintiffs and the class. As described in detail above, plaintiffs individually and on behalf of the members of the class respectfully request that the court enter judgment in their favor and against defendants as follows. Certification of the proposed class, including appointment of plaintiff's counsel as class counsel, an order temporarily and permanently enjoining defendants from continuing the unlawful and deceptive practices alleged in this complaint. That's a nice touch. Injunctive, declaratory, and other equitable relief, including but not limited to a declaration that defendants' practices are illegal in a breach of their duties to plaintiffs in the class, an injunction on these illegal practices, an order requiring regular public accounting by defendants as to the collection, use, and disposition of collected funds and interest and, be, and income earned from these funds, and the appointment of a special master or an equally authorized panel of neutrals to monitor the collection, use, and disposal of collected funds and income earned from these funds. Oh, my gosh. If that were to happen, it's a long shot. But if the judge were to look at this and say, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And, you know, putting all those facts together since the beginning of the year, since uh, 2019 with the first whistleblower complaint, it's pretty, pretty overwhelming. 
that this church has been acting like the mafia. They are the Mormon mafia. It's not a joke anymore. Wow. I think the judge could be tempted to put the hurt on them by appointing a special master to monitor all their money and how they're spending it, make sure that they're doing it according to the law. Cost, restitution, damages, and disgorgement in an amount to be determined at trial. An order requiring the defendants to pay both pre- and post-judgment interest on any amounts awarded. An award of costs and attorney's fees and such other or further relief as may be appropriate. Demand for jury trial. Plaintiffs hereby demand a jury trial for all claims so triable. Dated this 31st day of October 2023. James E. Magleby. From Magleby. Katoxinos and Greenwood. Okay. And that is the end of the complaint. Let me take it off the screen there. And here we are. So this is really exciting news. Um, they have not used the theory that I suggested back in February of this year. But that's okay. There's nothing saying mine is, my idea is great. I did that uh, the TikTok on it, which has basically 150,000 views now, 149.9. It went crazy because everybody liked the idea of the lawsuit. <clears throat> and what I had suggested there was that the lawsuit could be that in as much as now the church has admitted with the SEC order, right? That number one, they were hiding the fact they had $32 billion in the US stock market and they were hiding it because they were concerned that members would stop paying tithing if they knew how much money the church had. And I thought, now that they've admitted that, courtesy of the SEC investigation and the negotiated order, now that they've admitted that, what does that mean for a member who comes forward and says, if I had known that you had $32 billion in the U.S. stock market, I would not have paid tithing. That is a good theory, I think. This is a different theory. This is more like the Huntsman case theory than my theory. Still possible for it to be amended. You know, take it, use it if you want. Um. But it's a very important case. And if this survives, and I've got a feeling it just might, then it's going to be open season on people joining into this class, which could indeed be thousands and even potentially millions of members of this class. And if that happens, then who knows what's going to happen. But the church isn't going to have quite so much money anymore if that happens. So that is the end of the complaint. I'm going to look over here for my outro video, and I'm going to say thanks, everybody. Please hit like. Please hit subscribe. Um, and thank you to all the people who donate to this show by going to RadioFreeMormon.org and hitting the donate button. Thank you so much. Um, your contributions do keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.